Well, we, um, we delight in Jesus' birth, and we meditate on the meaning of the incarnation, and now it's kind of fitting to remember that Jesus moves forward in time and in space as a growing person. It's kind of a fitting meditation for January 1st, so Happy New Year 2023. It's kind of shocking. But it's fitting as we move forward into a new year to contemplate our growing relationship with God and with each other, and so we're going to look at our gospel text this morning. I have to be honest, I've never preached on this one, and I don't know if I've really ever liked it before, although I've come to love it. Um, I think I had this kind of like predisposition against kind of like child, you know, kind of Shazam stories, you know, because there are a lot of them out there uh, in, in the uh, first couple of centuries. Maybe you've heard of a Gospel of Thomas, and you have Jesus turning stones into doves and, you know, kind of zapping his friends when he's mad and things like that. So I don't like those stories very much. <laughs> this is not one of those thankfully. Um, it's actually quite an important story, not for so showing us some Jesus razzle-dazzle, uh, probably not for child-rearing tips, although we'll get some of those along the way. Um, I think there's something else going on here. Um, but it's worth asking ourselves, are the actions and words of a 12-year-old Jesus authoritative for us in the same way that his mature actions and teachings are? I mean, it's a little unusual, you know, to be looking at Jesus. I mean, we're used to the, 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 the manger scenes. We've grown up with those. Uh, Jesus, the 12-year-old, you know, that does, to me doesn't, doesn't sit so well in my mind. So um, I want to kind of soak in this just a little bit and read the text carefully, and I think we're going to find a lot of purpose for ourselves at this time. Part of the incarnation is the growth and maturity of the young Jesus into a man. So we're learning about the impact of the word made flesh, not just as a baby and then leaping forward to a 30-year-old, but he actually was a 12-year-old and all the other ages in between. That's part of the incarnational reality of being fully human. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that if you include verse 40 in this text, verse 40 and 52 are kind of bookends. He grew, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom and favor with God. On the one hand, that is, he is fully human. These are human words, growing, becoming, being filled. Not a magician, not a wizard, but a man. And he's a young man who's growing into maturity, full of vigor and full of attachment to God. So one aspect uh, that we learn here of being human that we should note is that things take time. That might be easy for some folks. I've noticed in the, uh, this region of the country, there are a lot of type A personalities. Mm. Um, hard to imagine that things actually take time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of jarring to some people, but they do. Though, note that uh, Luke is hinting at Jesus' uniqueness as well. I use the word uniqueness. We know that he's fully divine, but they didn't use words like that then. They did not know that. But Luke is saying, yeah, there's something special about Jesus. Obviously, you would know that if you had read the first two chapters. But still, that's something special about Jesus that we learn from the birth narratives now continues to manifest itself. I mean, how do you get there? He's growing in wisdom and favor. These are signals of messianic expectation, but they don't just kind of drop like a stone onto Jesus. He grows into them as a man. Very interesting. How does that happen? 
I think there are probably some child-rearing tips here uh, if you want to glean them as I go forward. But certainly as we look at Jesus, we'll notice some things about his development. First of all, we notice that Mary and Joseph are very pious people. They're very devout. We've seen that already. Joseph in his righteousness was prepared to do a good, hard thing in divorcing Mary, but to do it quietly with mercy. Of course, that was before he knew all the information. But we also note that Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem, it says, every year to celebrate the Feast of Passover. If you know the biblical festivals, and there are several of them, and you can read all about them in Exodus, Leviticus, and elsewhere, Deuteronomy, um, you'll know that there were certain festivals which were called pilgrimage festivals. There were three of them, and you would, you would go actually to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, there was a lot of mercy uh, here. Um, it was an aspiration to go at least once in your lifetime. It was a hardship to go every year. You know, people were busy and, and, and uh, they were subsistence farming often, so it was hard to leave. But Mary and Joseph found a way to leave every year. They would go on pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. They were pious people. Um, pilgrimage is a really wonderful thing. If you've never been on a pilgrimage before, um, you know, they're really special. Um, of course, I lived in Jerusalem, and that was part of the ministry that we did. But you can take pilgrimages to many different places that are special. Um, but pilgrimages are not just like going on vacation. They're different. They're saturated with expectation and with meaning and purposefulness and community. Um, oftentimes, pilgrimages community communal experiences. They certainly were in the time of Jesus. And that's why you find Jesus' family and his relatives, his neighbors. I'm sure like a snowball rolling down a hill, it was just gathering more people as it left from Galilee and went, you know, south and then up to Jerusalem. They were gaining momentum. You even see this later on in Jesus' time when he's, you know, he's starting to attract disciples and, you know, blind Bartimaeus and all these people kind of start becoming part of the entourage. It's, it's, it's a pilgrimage. And uh, you're walking a lot. Um, you're moving along, and during that time, what are you talking about? Well, if you're Jewish, you're telling the story. Passover is a story of our ancestors who were slaves uh, finding God on our behalf, acting as our warrior who leads us to redemption, and then in the desert teaches us what it's like to be a people. So there's lots of time for the biblical storytelling of who we are as a people, but not just that, pondering the meaning of the narrative together. I'm sure they were talking about news from Jerusalem. They were hearing words from the older people among them, teaching the younger people about what it was like when they went on their first pilgrimage and what it was like to live out the words of Torah day to day, how they did it in their village and in their family. I'm sure there are a lot of questions from kids. You can imagine, you know, a three-day pilgrimage from Jerusalem, from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, was, or from Nazareth to, uh, to Jerusalem, is probably a, a, quite a, a significant event in the life of a, of a child, particularly, not to mention the adults. So you can see Jesus was saturated in a biblical world that was deeply personal and also richly communal. To be a Jewish person was really to live in this story. That's what you did. You learned about it every day. You prayed multiple times a day. You celebrated the Sabbath every week. 
You went through, uh, you know, certain kind of milestones in your life. Circumcision. We've already seen Jesus, at, you know, being dedicated at the temple. You celebrated Sabbath. There was home learning and pilgrimage and, and the story and the reading and hearing of Torah all the time. This was what you were saturated in. And so Jesus identity was being formed and shaped all the way along. He was learning, who are my people? What is it like for our people to do? What, uh, who am I and where do I belong in this narrative? All within the context of God's covenant with Israel. So growing in wisdom meant not just that he was a smart guy, it meant that he was growing in his comprehension of the warp and wolf of God's unfolding covenant with Israel. That's what his wisdom was in. He didn't just know the law of physics. He was actually growing wise in this, God's story with Israel. And I think that's probably what was striking even at a young age of 12. I think Jesus was fathoming God's nature. Remember, stories have an inner life there's the details, but there are things going on which when you're in the story, you feel it and you get the sense of it and you live it well. You can tell when somebody's acting uh, in a play and they're flat and somebody who's acting and it just brings it to life. What's the difference? It's not just skill. The person bringing it to life is actually in it in a certain way. Jesus was in it. When he read the story, it was alive to him. He was fathoming God's nature, the intent he grasps the dynamics of God's interactions with his people. He felt the worship of the Psalms, and I'm sure he, he was alive to the visions of the prophets because in this way, Jesus especially is unlike us. He is without sin, fully human, but not with sin. And I have to imagine that as Jesus matured as a young man without sin, that allowed his whole being to be open and fully alive to God's way of being with Israel and that his heart was open without obstacles to experiencing the love of his father. There just wasn't hindrances. So his capacity to, to kind of be in the story was just greater than ours because we're so weighed down with our, our condition. So perhaps some of this information will help us find the story of Jesus in the temple a bit less strange. As a 12-year-old, he was now on the cusp of adulthood. It's hard to draw a straight analogy between a 12-year-old today in our culture and a 12-year-old in Jesus' time in his culture. Um, as a 12-year-old, he was on the cusp of adulthood. He would have been a responsible person. He would have been independent to some extent. He would have been, you know, known how to work his way, you know, move. He would have been familiar with his way around a shop, for example, and he would have been helping his dad. Um, you know, he would have had ownership of things. He was capable of using good judgment. He was expected to use good judgment. You know, pilgrimages, as I've described, they were, they were caravans. So it wasn't so far-fetched to think that Jesus' absence would not have been noticed immediately. He would likely have helped out with the preparations. It would have been natural for Mary and Joseph just to assume that he was with the clan. Likewise, uh, perhaps it's not so strange now to think of Jesus being at home in the temple precincts, pondering Torah with his elders. Notice the careful way that Luke describes this. Jesus is, first of all, listening. So, you know, when I think of Jesus being in, in the temple precincts, you know, I, I thought of him kind of sitting up on a, 
you know, on a chair and everybody gathered on and this boy wonder was kind of giving forth wisdom. That's not what Luke is describing here. It's probably the other way around. He, he says Jesus is listening and he's asking questions. Sounds like he's a good student, right? So in my mind, I don't want to think about Jesus kind of pontificating like, you know, like the Lincoln Memorial, you know, um, sitting on a throne with all of the masses, you know. I mean, Jesus is very much part of his community. He's listening to his teachers and he's asking good questions. He wasn't a savant. He was just learned and he was good at it. Oh, I would have loved to have heard that conversation. Perhaps he was learning then what we would later hear in the Gospels. You know, the Jewish word for teaching uh, pragmatic things is halakha. It means to walk, things you do when, when you're walking around. So there would be questions about divorce or Sabbath keeping, keeping kosher, hand washing. Perhaps it was about politics, about paying taxes or how to treat the Romans. Perhaps there were questions of prophecy or even messianic expectation. These are all things that Jesus and the teachers would be discussing and debating later on in the story. I wonder if what may have amazed those who heard him wasn't just that, that he was kind of dropping, you know, kind of uh, uh, um, you know, crazy insights, but that it, the insight would have been experienced as the, his comprehension of, of the good questions that he would ask, or his comprehension of what scripture intended, his grasp of God's nature, his understanding of the whole picture, he would have had that from his heart and mind uncluttered and undistorted. And of course, we know the conversation does not end here. It continues on and, uh, and would be uh, picked up again in his ministry of teaching. So this is all very good so far, but there is a problem here, and that's Mary and Joseph could not find Jesus and their worry and anxiety stretched over three or four days. And this raises problems for them and for us as his readers. Um, because uh, we kind of sympathize, I think, many of us with Mary and Joseph. It feels like Jesus is coloring a little outside the lines. It's awkward. So what are we to make of this? You can see here that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are not entirely on the same page. And I think that's the point of the story. There's a reason why Luke is uh, 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 offering the story to us. He, he's showing that the seed of difference between Jesus and everybody else is now starting to become a little more manifest. So you'll see that Mary calls him, well, in, in our translation, son. It's a child in Greek. There's a word for son specifically, and she calls him the word really uh, that, that's better suited to, to call him child. Um, it's you know, kind of saying, Jesus, you're, you're, you're dependent on me. Um, maybe it was endearing, but it's probably exasperated. Uh, perhaps, you know, Mary's just one step behind Jesus. You can see that Mary's point of view here isn't really aligned with what we're going to learn from Jesus. But she asks a really good question. Why have you treated us this way? Ah, that's the ouch question. Expressing an expectation of obligation upon Jesus. Perhaps there was an emotional overtone as well. You've hurt us in this action. In other words, Mary's, Mary's saying, you did this to us. That, that hurts. Like, I thought we had some kind of different relationship here, and, and what you've done now is, you know, makes me feel bad. She's basically telling Jesus, look, your focus was misplaced. You were looking at the wrong people. I'm your mom. This is your dad. It's personal. 
you seem to be distracted now with your own business and you, you didn't sympathize with us. And she says, you know, your father and I were in distress. And, you know, of course, we can imagine the distress that, that they must have been under. You know, Jerusalem, very, very crowded during Passover, packed with people. Um, it obviously took a long time for them to find Jesus. So, you know, kind of a little bit of a signal. They didn't know exactly where to look. They probably went back to their campground and, you know, all the places they had lunch and, you know, wherever there were friends that they may have connected with that hadn't left yet, they went there. There's a lot of places to check in Jerusalem during high festival time. It's a lot of people. You ever go to those Yogi Bear campgrounds when you were young? That, that's just vision popped into my head. I hate those places. Um, so this is troublesome. This is strong language and, and, and significant. Mary is very succinct, and that's a good example for us. She expresses herself very well. Jesus' actions are distressing to her as a parent indicating that Jesus is some, some, somehow dismissive of parental bonds, unconcerned about their anxiety. This seems to be very clear to her. I mean, when my mom said things like this to me, I was generally contrite and did not argue. You know, I knew the question was genuine, but these are as much statements as they are questions. Mary's saying something. She's not asking a hypothetical. And actually, <laughs> we're going to find out that this scenario is uh, very typical in the stories of Jesus as we move forward. Crowds of people, amazement, distress, varying agendas and impressions, complex emotional questions, Jesus right in the middle of it all. We're going to see this time and time again as we move forward in the story. He seems to have this effect on people. So this is an important moment in the life of Jesus, an important moment of transition. Mary and Joseph had been the agents and actors and controllers in the life of Jesus to some extent up until now. And you'll see the first half of the story, it's really Mary and Joseph doing all the acting. We don't see Jesus too much until the second half of the passage. And then it's all about him. They knew, of course, that Jesus was different, but of course they couldn't fully comprehend how that difference would be expressed in Jesus' actions. And so can we just identify with Mary and Joseph? I mean, we think we know something, but we don't really know how it works out. And when it starts to work out, all of a sudden it kind of kicks up some dust and we're like, oh, we didn't think it would be like that. But what Luke is showing us here, I think, is the special relationship is starting to become more manifest, the special relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly father. It's beginning to develop now in a more visible way. And that's hard. Of course, it's quite natural to assume that at the age of 12, Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father would start to become more concrete and visible. That's when that happens in the life of a Jewish boy. It would be appropriate now for a male to be mentored towards his bar mitzvah at the age of 13, towards fulfilling roles that adults fulfill in their household and community under the guidance of their father. So this is a this is the appropriate moment for the relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father to start to take shape. Clearly, Jesus, uh, as we move forward in the story here, he is a chip off the old block. Um, the first two sentences we hear Jesus utter in this life are questions. Ah, just like his dad, right? 
Adam, where are you? That's the first thing we hear God say in this world. Asking questions. It's just like his father. Notice, Jesus here does not subdue the fear of Mary by giving it any credibility. He doesn't seem all warm and fuzzy at this moment. Not in the way that we think of it. He doesn't say, okay. That comes. But, Jesus right here is ministering to Mary and Joseph, uh, not in their fear, but in the antidote of truth. He asks two questions. First of all, he says, why are you looking for me? Well, that's kind of exasperating. <laughs> but it's such an important question from Jesus' perspective because it brings sharply into focus a distance between Mary and Jesus created not by Jesus' misunderstanding, but by Mary's. That's the ouch factor. Do you see why repentance is so deeply integrated into the life of faith? Mary said, Jesus, you have a problem. And Jesus says, Mary, you have a problem. You know, it's just so natural for us to fall into that way of thinking. God, you just didn't do it the right way. We don't even know we're doing it. Mary wasn't thinking systematically. She was just being a mom, and she's lost her kid in Jerusalem. Three, and then when he, she finds him, he's not like knocked out unconscious under a tree. <laughs> right? No, he's, he's having, a, he's with, you know, Mary, it's natural for her to think, you didn't see clearly. And Jesus has to say, Mary, you didn't see clearly. It's important to acknowledge the distress because that's just part of discipleship. It's hard to kind of get ourselves oriented and then receive a word like that. And it's very difficult to see very well when we are distressed. There may have been another pathway open to Mary and Joseph, I don't know, but perhaps Mary and Joseph, so unique as Jesus parents, Mary especially so, are like us, like us in this regard. They also have to seek so that they too may find. And isn't that just so deeply embedded in God's word to us? It makes me think of what God said to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And the older I get, I've come to realize I don't think by all your heart means you try harder. I think all your heart means even the painful parts of your heart. It's not so much trying harder, seek harder. It's with more openness and with more vulnerability. And God is an ally for us in that. We don't seek him with just the part of our heart that we like. Um, we seek him with the real heart. And that's what's going on here with Mary, I think. And then he asks another question uh, about where he is to be found. Verse 49, a contrast to Mary's direct acknowledgement of Joseph's distress. So Mary says, your father and I are distressed. And here Jesus begins to express what is different about him. He says, Ima, I am with my Abba. I am with my father. And I think this is the key point of the story. You know, it, it, it's, again, a little bit of an ouch thing. Joseph knows 
right? And so does Mary, that Jesus has a heavenly father, but now it's coming visible. And now that kind of movement away, the movement towards his adulthood, the movement of separation, the movement of distinction is beginning to manifest itself, manifest itself in the life of Jesus. And this is a key moment where that's happening. Jesus is at home with his father. You know, Mary was concerned that Jesus is not at home with his father. And Jesus is saying, I am at home with my father. That is the contrast to the distress of Mary and Joseph, who believe that Jesus is exactly not at home with his father, Jesus is saying, well, the time of reorienting around God's mission for me is drawing nearer as I approach adulthood. If you understand that, I think he's saying the whole experience would have been a little different for you. Um, his father's house, of course, is very significant. It's the temple. And so on, on the one hand, we can hear this. My father's house is this building, which is one proper interpretation. The temple is just at the heart of Israel's worship and identity. It's the focus of God's presence. Remember, the Holy of Holies was there. That's where God's presence dwelt over the mercy seat. It was the site of sacrifices, of atonement, of bringing reconciliation back into the broken relationship. It was the site of teaching. The, the temple was like a big synagogue at that time. A lot of teaching going on there, and we can see Jesus with the teachers right there in the temple. And Jesus would go back there many times to teach, as did his disciples and the apostles after, afterwards. So the temple is the center of gravity for the Jewish people, and Jesus has a very powerful relationship with this temple. Remember, he would go back there later to, in anger to drive out the money changers. He would predict that the building would fall apart and be rebuilt in three days, referring to his own body. Of course, he would say he himself is the temple. He would say one greater than the temple is here. People got very upset about that. So there's a lot of, a lot of uh, connection between Jesus, the Lamb of God, the temple of God, the Word of God. There's a great connection between Jesus and the temple, which was very dynamic and meaningful. And he was saying it's appropriate that that relationship and that bond is being established right now. But even more so, house means dominion. My father's dominion, the, 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 um, the sovereignty over his household, his association as son. And Jesus is saying, in that way, I'm in my father's house. I am my father's son. I am within the scope of his authority. So Jesus is acknowledging that he is becoming situated within this larger mission of Israel and that he has this unique relationship with the Father. So you can see these aren't riddles. Jesus isn't lobbing riddles out into these amazing, stupid people. He's being very natural for himself. He's being very well situated right within the ebb and flow of God's being with Israel. These are familiar things. They were just surprising as, Jesus, as God was working it out in the life of Jesus. They're real answers. Jesus is not acting strangely, but authentically according to his nature. Jesus is doing what he ought to be doing, which is acting within the domain and mission of his father, which is to identify with Israel's plight. Remember what his mission was, is to seek and save the lost, to dwell with his people and bring God's kingdom to earth. And that's what he's beginning to step into here. 
So this is hard for Mary and Joseph. It's disorienting for them. It's disorienting for us. It creates distance. It causes distress. It feels personal and painful in the moment. It's not quick and painless. This whole thing is a process in time. And the story portrays that reality. It portrays the reality that our frame of reference, our expectations, our assumptions, our attempts at solving problems are limited. I spend a lot of time on those things. Mostly my life is about expectations, assumptions, and attempts at solving problems <laughs> and discovering that I'm limited all the time. You know? <laughs> Jesus' family and his followers would have to learn time and again to be disoriented and reoriented around life with a living God, not an idea, not an abstraction or a concept. Here, flesh and blood. Jesus was not mean or tricky. He was simply stating the simple truth that God is with us. His place was with his father then, and it still is. For he sits, as we know, because we know the story in a way that Joseph and Mary did not know at that time. He sits at God's right hand now as our advocate and friend. And from there, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And on that day, we'll find that the waiting was worth it for he will be our savior and our God. We may be in a place like Mary and Joseph, distressed, searching, angry with God for being impossible to find, or we may know somebody who is. We can't con control God, that's for sure. And in this, Mary is our example, as she was in many ways. She didn't lash out, she didn't strike back, she didn't punish, it's hard to even think of that. <laughs> What did she do? She didn't run away. She treasured these things in her heart. She slowed herself down. She didn't get out in front of Jesus. She didn't try to correct or corral or cajole or berate. She just stayed there with him. Mary and Joseph did not understand. This passage doesn't end with understanding. And that's hard. We know the feeling. But make note of this, in the end, Jesus returns to Nazareth, submissive to Mary and Joseph. They're still all moving in the same direction together. That gives me a great deal of comfort. So in 2023, let's learn to trust God together while his ministry works itself out in the particular details of our lives. We know where Jesus is. We know who he is. We can be sure that Jesus is with his father speaking our names into the Father's ear even now, we can be sure that in amazing ways through the power of the Holy Spirit that he is with us. We can be sure that as the story unfolds, it will be for our blessing and for our good. Uh, even more, we can take the kingdom of heaven of which he is the Lord to the ends of the earth as his partners in mission. Maybe Jesus was thinking about places like Annapolis when he said that. God is with us. Take heart, treasure these things in your heart. God is with you, walking with you in the same direction. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.